So I was away last week. I missed you very much. I was uh, at a church in Metro LA preaching God's word there. Every time that I'm away from CBC, my heart and my affections for you are always stirred. I am grateful for each of you. I love you as your pastor, and I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing here at this church. I look forward to this sermon this morning as we will look to Christ together, and we will rejoice in the fact that it is through Christ alone that we are saved and that we are therefore secure. That's good news. And so let's pray together before we look to Scripture, and then we will have at it and trust that it will be profitable for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, as we say so often here, but it's true, in need of what only you can do. We come here this morning as people who are still struggling under the weight of our own corruption and are therefore desperate for what only Jesus can provide for us. And so we pray that you would come and be with us by your spirit now as we consider the person and the work of your son. And that as his power and his work is extolled in our midst this morning, we pray that our faith would be strengthened, that our faith would be sustained, that you might even impart faith to those who do not yet trust Christ. And we pray that we would know that in Christ alone, we have everything that we could ever need to stand before you and that we would know that we stand and sit secure this morning as sinners who are now in Christ Jesus. We pray for your help now and for your spirit's work in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon title is Christ Alone. That's been referenced a few times already. Disclaimer, I know that we get this every week at CBC. Christ Alone. And that's totally fine with me, and I trust it is with you too. Because, honestly, brothers and sisters, we cannot hear this enough. We cannot hear enough the work of Christ in our place, and therefore the absolute unshakable confidence that we have because of Christ, not because of anything in us. Having the person and the work of Jesus heralded to us, and I... I include myself in that, us. Like, even as I preach, I'm under the word, and my own mind and heart are affected. As we have the person and work of Christ heralded to us, that is how faith is imparted, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It's how faith is sustained. And we could even say that it is how our faith is confirmed and strengthened to have Christ held out to us from Scripture. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, the apostle writes these words. I write these things. He's looking back on the entire letter he's written. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing all of these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John Calvin, in his commentary on that verse, 1 John 5, 13, writes these words. The apostle says that he wrote to those who had already believed so that they might believe more firmly and with greater certainty and thus enjoy a fuller confidence as to eternal life. Then the use of doctrine is not only to initiate the ignorance and the knowledge of Christ, but also to confirm those more and more who have already been taught. For there are still in us many remnants of unbelief. My goodness, that's true. 
But we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed, even by having the office and power of Christ explained to us. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else. Amen. So in addition to that piece about our faith being confirmed and us being strengthened, assurance being bolstered, in addition to all of those things, the bottom line is too that all of us as children of Adam, we still wrestle and struggle with a legal spirit. We wrestle and struggle with a legal spirit. It's hardwired into our DNA as fallen children of Adam and Eve. Sinclair Ferguson writes these words. There is more to legalism than merely a doctrine of justification by works rather than by grace. Otherwise, legalism would be cured relatively easily. He goes on to say, as gospel ministers from Paul to the present day have acknowledged, few pastoral problems are as carefully disguised as the subtle mingling of a profession of grace with a legalistic heart. John Calhoun, another minister in the 1700s, wrote these words. A man is to be counted a legalist or self-righteous if while he does not pretend that his obedience is perfect, he yet relies on it for a title to life. So we all tend to think that we have to do something in order to qualify for God's grace. Now that, on the face of it, is absurd because grace is unmerited favor. But so often we think this way. Surely there's something that I've got to do to qualify for the grace of God. We all tend to think that we're earning or accruing something in God's bank through what we do. But that's not how this works. It's not how it works biblically. This is what the Lord says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. It's the work of God. In particular, it's the work of Jesus in the place of sinners counted to us by faith. It's free. It doesn't mean it's cheap, but it's free. So with all that by way of introduction, my plan for the rest of the time is this. I want us to consider first the concern, and that is that Jesus plus theology is all over the place. Secondly, I want us to consider the premise, and that is that Jesus has accomplished our redemption. And then thirdly, I want us to consider the conclusion that we are safe. Let me say that one more time. First, we'll consider the concern that Jesus plus theology is all over the place. Secondly, the premise that Jesus has accomplished our redemption. And then third, the conclusion that we are in fact safe. So we'll start with the concern that Jesus plus, and I'm using scare quotes here just because, I don't know, just seems appropriate to do. Jesus plus theology is all over the place. So friends, full-blown works righteousness is not the concern. Like full-tilt works righteousness is not the issue. That might exist in some cults, right, where it's just straight up about what you do. 
But it has not existed in the broader church historically. Just full tilt, righteousness by works. For example, in the medieval church that gave birth and gave rise to the Reformation, and even in the broader church context today, there was and is a happy acknowledgement of our need for God's grace and our need for Christ's work. The problem is something more subtle. The problem is something that is more slippery even. It's this Jesus plus stuff. And this has always been a problem in the church. If you think about the very first decades of the church after the ascension of the Lord Jesus and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church. Think about Paul's letter to the Galatians, which scholars agree is the oldest, the earliest writing in the entire New Testament. What is he going after in that letter to the Galatian believers? He's not going after full-blown works righteousness. Rather, what he is assailing in that letter is a mingling of law and gospel. It's this mingling of law and gospel thing that was the issue. False teachers in Galatia were telling people, trust Christ, absolutely. Believe in Jesus, but be circumcised. Trust Christ, but keep these works of the law as part of what is necessary for righteousness. It was Jesus plus. We made our way through that letter not terribly long ago as a church, and you may even have that in your mind, that we thought about that regularly during that time. Paul writes a lot in the letter to the Galatians about justification by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. He writes a lot about righteousness coming to us in and through Christ by way of grace. And then if there were any doubt, he gets to chapter 5, and the gloves just come completely off. And he writes these words in Galatians 5, 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and you could insert in there any work of the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, and you have fallen away from grace. Some of the sharpest words in the entire New Testament are the apostles defending the gospel. There's sharp language in other scenarios too, no doubt. But some of the sharpest words in the entire New Testament are words like that, where there is a mingling of law and gospel, and the apostles say, no way. It is all of Christ. If you accept any work as any part of the ground of your standing before God, now or in the future, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are obligated then, if you're going to aim to accept any work as a part of the ground of your standing before God, you are obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, Paul says, and have fallen away from grace. He's pretty clear. It's Christ or it's you. It's Christ's merit or your merit. It's Christ's righteousness or your righteousness. 
It's an all or nothing, either or proposition. There is no middle ground. But this has not stopped Christians through history. And even many of us in this room at times, if we're honest, this has not stopped many from trying to establish that middle ground position. It's Christ. Absolutely, it's Christ. But it's also kind of us. The Council of Trent was a meeting of church leaders that obviously, from our perspective, looking back, we would now refer to them as Roman Catholic theologians. At the time, it was the Church of Rome. The Council of Trent met from the years 1545 through 1563, you know, various sessions over those 18 years. The Council of Trent was held in response to the Protestant Reformation. And those Roman theologians met to discuss and ultimately to refute Protestant theology and Protestant doctrine. Of particular interest for us today are the words from Session 6, which was held on January the 13th, 1547. Session 6, Canon 24, the canon being a doctrine that was produced out of that session. And this is in particular relating to justification. So, Session 6, Canon 24, on justification, the Council of Trent. Here are the words. If anyone saith that the justice received, and by justice they mean justification, that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema, a curse. Now, I don't think that anybody today is saying that we increase our justification through good works. Nobody is saying that. But there is a lot of teaching that exists in the broader church today 500 years after the Reformation began, that sounds scarily similar to some of that language of the Council of Trent in terms of preserving our justification, in terms of maybe even actualizing our justification. Yes, you're justified by faith in Christ alone, but you better do good works to keep that justification in good standing. Yes, you're justified by faith in Christ alone, but you better do good works so that that justification becomes actualized and you're finally saved. Good works as evidence of the work that God has already done in us? Amen. Good works as even the necessary consequence of justification? Amen. Yes. But as soon as we cross over from good works as evidence to good works as some kind of contribution or good works as preservation of justification, we've gone off the rails. We've lost the gospel at that point. You can't, the problem, see, is that at a human level, we always want to work, try to reverse engineer this thing. This is how the logic goes. Just track with me for a second. If we have been justified, we will do good works. True. If there are no good works, we haven't been justified. True. 
So, do good works to know that you're justified. Wrong. That's the problem. You can't reverse engineer justification. You cannot reverse engineer salvation. Tell people to do good works so that they know they're saved. It doesn't work like that. This has everything. And I mean, just my angle here is not to make room for your sin or mine. My angle here is the biblical perspective on how you can have assurance that you, in fact, are right with God in Christ. Because if it hinges upon you or me to any degree in any aspect of any of this salvation thing, we're done. So deep is our depravity. So great is our corruption that we would have no hope if any of this depends on us. If you use this logic, do good works to know that you're justified, you have completely reversed the relationship. You have turned the thing on its head. Good works flow out of justification, but it doesn't flow the other direction. You have essentially put the cart before the horse, and you have killed the whole thing, if you talk that way. So I've done all of that just to kind of set up the concern and the foil. But now we're going to get to talk about what we really want to talk about, which is the work of Christ. So we've now come to the second portion, which is the premise. And that premise is that Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And by accomplished, we mean it's done and it's over. And there's nothing left to do except to trust Christ. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 1, on justification that we read earlier, is a phenomenal paragraph. And the reason that I'm reading some of these theologians and the reason I'm reading some of these confessions, and I'm going to read a question from the Heidelberg Catechism here in a minute, is just so that we all understand that what we're saying here at CBC is nothing new. The day that I start saying or we start saying anything new, we should all like run out of here as fast as we can. One of the great things about the heritage that we have, the saints who have gone before us, is that we're saying nothing original. Maybe saying it in a unique way or a different way with our own voice, but we're not saying anything new. So 1689, London Baptist Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 1. Just listen to these words again. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone. For Christ's sake alone he does it. And not for anything produced in them or done by them. So there we go. I mean, our justification has nothing to do with anything that we do. It is for the sake of Jesus alone. Now, will there be good works that come out of that change of heart, that new birth? You better believe it, man. But our standing before God is completely in Christ. All right, so he does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Where is our righteousness? What does it come from? 
Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law, his perfect life, and passive obedience in his death, atonement, propitiation, right? As their whole and only righteousness by faith. The whole and only righteousness we have is the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. We do not have a righteousness of our own. Sounds just like the Apostle Paul from Philippians 3. When he talks about how much of a rock star Pharisee he was, how he was crushing it, man. And he's like, but I consider all of those good works that I did as rubbish for the surpassing greatness of knowing my Lord Jesus Christ and having a righteousness that is attained by faith, not by works of the law, right? It's the righteousness of Christ. And then the writers of the confession say this faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God, lest we think that we somehow muster that faith up somehow. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. The question reads this way. How art thou righteous before God? How art thou righteous before God? The answer. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that, though my conscience accuse me, and yes it does, that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Somebody say amen, right? Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. What wonderful words those are. Though my conscience accuse me rightly that I have broken every single one of God's commands. That's true because like James 2, 10 and 11, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all, right? That's also true because we never, as it goes on to say, have never kept a single commandment of God truly, ever. Because one of the things that Jesus does when he shows up on the scene immediately, Sermon on the Mount, he starts to preach the law to the hearts of men. And he says, if you think you've kept the law, you're deluded. You think you're doing well because you haven't committed adultery. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you've lusted after somebody who's not your spouse, you're done. You're a lawbreaker. You might not have killed somebody, but if you've had anger in your heart towards your brother, which we all have, you are a lawbreaker. So we've broken all of his commands. We've never really kept one of them. And I am still inclined to all evil. I am at the same time a sinner and justified. The longer I've been a Christian and the longer I've been a pastor, I'm finding, a, finding it hard to find a biblical truth more important for the Christian life than that one. That I am, we are at the same time justified and sinner. That's a critical thing to keep in mind. But the answer goes on. It gets perhaps better. In spite of all of that that's true of me, God, without any merit of ours, only by mere grace, grants and imputes the perfect satisfaction of Jesus. 
That means his atonement, his sacrifice. He was perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless. And then went to die for wretches like you and me. The justice of God was satisfied. The righteous wrath of God against sin was propitiated in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So that satisfaction that Jesus made in our place to the law and to God the Father is counted to us. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2, 20, 21. That we have died to the law in Christ. The penalty that we owed, Jesus paid that, really. It was a transaction that happened. And now we're free from that penalty. But not only is the satisfaction of Christ imputed to us, his righteousness and his holiness are counted to us. So much so that they say, it is as if I never had had any sin, and it, it is as if I never had committed any sin. And it gets better. It is as though I really had accomplished all of the obedience that Jesus accomplished that's now counted to me. Like, the news doesn't get any better than that. All of the bad is paid for. Not just the bad things you've done, but your inherent corruption has been atoned for. And obedience, the perfect obedience of Christ is counted to you as if you had done it. Holy smokes. That's the gospel, man, received by faith not by works. We trust Christ and his work is ours. That's the remarkable thing. We talk so much about the work of Christ in our place and that means that as we trust him, not only does he take our bad works and record, we actually get his works. That's why we sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. But now I want to look to Scripture. I'm going to be reading a number of passages. So just, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you references. The sermon audio will be up in due time. Don't try to turn in your Bible unless you were like, seriously, Bible drill champ. Like, unless you're really good. All right, you're, you don't want to try to turn and keep up. 1 Corinthians 1. 30 and 31. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus has become, for those of us who are in Christ, and we're in Christ because of God, he did it, right? Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, he has become to us righteousness. We've already been thinking about that. Then this word, this is a mind blow. He has become to us sanctification. Christ, so seriously, now listen. You are being sanctified, so am I. It's a process. And it is certain and secure in Christ. How good news is that? How good of a news is that? It's amazing that this process called sanctification is certain because Christ has seen to that. We tend to not think that way. We tend to think, oh yeah, justification, baby, it's all of Christ. He accomplished that, now I better get to work, you know, and sanctify myself. No, we're justified by Christ and our sanctification is secured by Christ as God's spirit works in us. And yes, we participate in it. 
Just like we participate in life by being alive. If we're alive, we will do good works, right? It will happen. But it's not in jeopardy. It's not like, oh, well, you've been justified, and now let's see if you are sanctified. No, you have been justified, and you are being sanctified. It will happen, and you will be glorified, all because of Christ. Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He has redeemed us. So that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's work from beginning to end. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ has secured our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have been not, not been given a spirit of fear, Romans 8, 15, right? But a spirit of adoption by which, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Well, that too was secured for us by Christ. It is through Christ that we have become sons and daughters of God by faith. Romans 5, 1, and then also verses 9 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great blessing is peace with God. It's all because of Christ that we have it. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Peace and reconciliation are ours through Christ alone. So in summation, just in considering these few passages, Jesus is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is our justification. He is our adoption. He is our reconciliation. He is our peace. In other words, Christ is all. Christ is all. I think it's appropriate to say that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. His person and his work is the gospel. God's grace to us is Christ in that sense. His grace to us is Christ. It's not like you can separate those two. Like you've got Jesus over here and the grace of God over here. They're one and the same. Like, you want to know the grace of God, look to Christ. You want to know the good news, look to Christ. You want to know the love of God for you, look to Christ. You want to know the glory of God, look to Christ. 
It is in Christ that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. And by every blessing, I assume Paul means every blessing. Christ has seen to all of them. To be in Christ, brothers and sisters, is to be saved. And to be saved is to be in Christ. It's our union with Christ that is our certainty. I'm going to say this next sentence twice because I want to, but then in part I want you to hear it twice. We are as unshakably and permanently righteous in the sight of God as Christ is because it is Christ's own righteousness that has become ours. So if you need a good word this morning, a word that can put some rock under your feet and give you hope in the midst of struggle, we are as unshakably and permanently righteous in the sight of God as Christ is because it is Christ's own righteousness that has become ours. I don't know about you, but as a man who is aware, not as much as I should be, but at times of my own frailty and the corruption of my own heart, that's good news. That my righteousness before God is as unshakable and as permanent as the righteousness of Christ. Because it's that very righteousness that's been counted to me. It's the greatest thing in the world. We say this semi-regularly and it's true. It's the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. And it's the safest place to be. Which is where we're headed. So now we're going to consider part three. Point three. The conclusion. And that's that we are safe. So the concern is that Jesus plus theology is all over the place. The premise is that Jesus has accomplished redemption. And the conclusion is that we are safe. So as you live life in this fallen world, I don't know how your week's been this week. Mine's been definitely up and down. I wonder what you think if you ask yourself the question, how do you know? that you're going to make it? How do you know that you're going to make it to be in the new Jerusalem to behold Christ? You still struggle against sin like I do. Your faith at times falters like mine does. Like even Abraham's did, the man of faith, his faith faltered. So how do you know? that you would be counted among the righteous at the end of history? How do you know? Well, one thing we can say for sure is that it won't be because of anything in us that we could be sure. The best answer to that question, how do you know, is because Jesus will never fail you. It's because Jesus will never lose you. John 6, 37 to 40, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You want to know the will of God? That's it. That Jesus would lose none of all that the Father has given to him, that's, that means people, that means us, right? Of all the Father has given to Jesus, he will lose none 
but he will raise us up on the last day. For this is, he reiterates, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. Yes, Jesus, please tell us what it is. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mic drop. John 10, 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It's an intimate relationship. Jesus is not confused as to who his sheep are. He knows us well. But then he says this, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, namely not Jews but Gentiles in that context. I must bring them also. Sounds like he's going to do it. And they will listen to my voice, he says. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. John 10, 27 and 28, just a few verses later. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. It's not earned. It's a gift. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ intercedes for you. We see him praying for his people, praying for us in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. And we're told here that he still exercises that high priestly office. And unlike all the other priests that went before him, there is no need for a succession because he continues forever and always lives to intercede for his own. That's you. We're safe because Jesus will never fail us and we're safe because... He will never lose us. We're also safe because the work of redemption is absolutely over. There's no jeopardy in the situation because there's nothing left to do. Christ has done it all. He says that when he dies. John 19, 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now at the risk of sounding punchy, I'm going to say this anyway. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He did not say, tag, you're it. Go do your part. He didn't. He said, it's done. It's I believe him. I know you do too. It is finished. Everything required. Atonement, propitiation, righteousness, holiness, everything. It's over. How great is our Savior, right? Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. We're going to think more about how great he is. How much greater he is than all the high priests who came before him. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. So all that sacrificing day after day after day after day after day, all that blood 
Everything in Leviticus, everything we read in the Pentateuch, about all of that stuff. God instituted that to point his people to the Messiah, to the one who would come to atone for their sins. But all of that blood and all of that sacrifice never could atone for sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time for all of his people, he sat down at the right hand of God. Praise be to his name. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's another verse to think about your sanctification. As you strive for obedience and you pursue good works, which we do because we're redeemed, we do it knowing that we're safe and we're good and that our sanctification is going to happen. As we sort of bring this to a close, we're safe, as we've already thought about, because Jesus will never fail us. We're safe because redemption is over. We're also safe because Jesus is a tender and gentle Savior. He is a tender and gentle Savior. And good gracious, do we need that? Because we are weak and frail. And we struggle. Like the psalmist says, our hearts and flesh may fail, and they do. But Jesus says this, Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. So brothers and sisters, if you ever find yourself in a context in the church and the burden feels heavy, it ain't Jesus. If the burden is heavy, it ain't Jesus. He says so himself. Matthew 12, 18 to 21. Matthew is citing the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah wrote about the servant of the Lord who would come. And then the gospel writer applies the words of Isaiah to Christ. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles hope. So again, if you ever find yourself in the context in the church, if bruised reeds are being broken and smoldering wicks are being put out, it's not Jesus. We thought about from the Heidelberg Catechism how our consciences accuse us of our corruption, how our consciences remind us regularly how we've broken all of God's commands, we've never really kept one, and we still struggle against sin. Not only do our consciences haunt us, 
Satan, the great enemy, the great accuser of the brethren, accuses us too, all the time. And he does so for good reason. I mean, it's not like he doesn't have material to work with. My gosh, there's plenty in all of our lives for Satan to take and beat us to death with. The accusations are legitimate. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, when we are accused by our consciences or by Satan himself, we have a place to rest. We have a hiding place. Some in the room may have written, or excuse me, read a book by Richard Sibbs entitled The Bruised Reed. If you haven't read it, I would commend it to you. In a portion of that book, Sibbs does this little dialogue between, he depicts a dialogue between Satan and a Christian where they could go back and forth. And I'm kind of borrowing that style from him here. But this is how it goes. We're accused, and then how is it that we would respond, given that we're in Christ? The accuser comes and tells us, you are a great sinner. To which we would say, yes, but Christ is a great Savior. But you have no faith. You've got no love. You've got no good works to speak of. That's true. I really only have a small amount of faith and a small amount of love and a few good works, I suppose. But Christ, he's not going to honor that. Christ won't honor that. Ah, but he doesn't break the bruised reed. And he doesn't put out the, the smoldering wick. Yeah, but your faith and your love are so small. They're so weak. They're so pathetic. They're going to vanish and become nothing. To which we say, that would be true if it weren't for Christ. That would be true if it were not for Christ. But as it is, he will protect this bruised root. And he will cherish this smoldering wick until he has brought judgment to victory. We have a safe place in Christ. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My ransomed soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We are secure because of Christ alone and in Christ alone. Thanks be to God for him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Many of us in this room are pretty aware of our own corruption and how we struggle against it. We're aware of our frailty. We pray, pray God, that as is appropriate, that you would rob us of any confidence that we could ever have in ourselves. But we pray that you would establish us firmly by faith in your Son that we would know that we are safe and secure. We pray that you would continue to do your good work in us by your Spirit as we live life together as brothers and sisters in the church. And we pray that it would always be the case here at CBC that as we have locked arms together, that we would all look to Christ together and point one another to him. We praise you and thank you for your great plan of redemption in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.